until now we've, we've been talking about the international legal issues associated with the use of force, and rightfully so, but I didn't think that we should conclude today without talking about probably the most important domestic legal issue associated with the use of force, and that is the issue of and the ongoing debate concerning whether there is a need And as the Dean indicated this morning, it's been used, the AUMF, both AUMFs have been used to justify 37 distinct military operations in 14 different countries. And so there's a reason why the debate is on. Uh, we have with us to conclude our conference today, Professor Laura Donahue from Georgetown Law School. And Laura's bio is uh, in the program who will contend that there is, in fact, a need for a new AUMF. Professor Bob Turner from our own University of Virginia Law School will submit that, no, there is no need for a new AUMF. Now, here are the rules. Here are the procedures. They're each going to have 25 minutes to make their arguments, and then they'll have five minutes to respond, remembering that this is a discussion, not a debate, and then we'll leave 15 minutes for Q&A from the audience. So 25 minutes each, five minutes response, and then 15 minutes from the audience. So with that being said, let me call upon Professor Donahue. Thanks very much, Dave. And thank you for the uh, invitation to be here today. It's lovely to see friends, uh, colleagues, and to have a chance to meet some new people as well. Uh, it is my view that it's time to rein in the executive branch in terms of its war powers uh, because they've become increasingly distended from how they were originally intended. My argument today in regard to ISIS or ISIL is that, first of all, Article II authorities are insufficient to defend what we're currently doing with regard to ISIS and ISIL. Second, that the 2001 AUMF is inapplicable to the situation. Third, the 2002 AUMF deals with the current Iraqi regime, and no, there is no UN Security Council resolution to support our military action. And fourth, the 2015 AUMF request was, of course, denied by Congress, not approved by them. Any further action against ISIS and ISIL, I will argue, would require a de congressional declaration of war, and the failure to do so results in a lack of constitutional fidelity and critical constraints on the executive branch. So I begin with the original understanding of the Constitution and the ideas animating it. The American colonists, as we know, were intimately familiar with the concept of tyranny. Charles I, who ruled England in the 17th century, was an absolute monarch. During the first five years of his reign, he called and then dismissed Parliament three times when they refused to agree to higher taxes. As a result, he ended up dissolving Parliament and ruling for 11 years without committing the legislature at all. Nevertheless, he obtained money by increasing taxes without any sanction. He used it to build up the army and the navy to prosecute overseas wars. These actions created intense hostility toward Charles I. Nevertheless, he ignored national sentiment. Scotland rebelled. Ireland stood on the brink of rebellion. And finally, he allowed Parliament to reconvene, but he objected to their actions, prompting the 1641 Grand Remonstrance, which sought to bring the military under control. 
When confronted with Parliament's 19 propositions in which Parliament claimed control of the military, his relationship with the legislature devolved into open warfare. The English Civil War ended his reign, but not the Crown's ambition. His second surviving son, James II, carried on the battle for supremacy. He built a standing army, funding it with taxes that Parliament never approved, and he imprisoned those with whom he disagreed. Now, he lost his, his crown in the Glorious Revolution, which re led to the adoption of the English Bill of Rights. England embraced a constitutional monarchy, yet structure in the 1689 Bill of Rights proved insufficient to restrain George III in his dealings with the American colonies. So in the Declaration of Independence, we, lead, we read of a list of crimes perpetrated by yet another English monarch, prompting the creation of these free and independent states. Military power and war powers were central to the colonists' grievances. He has kept amongst us in times of peace standing armies. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has acceded to quartering armed troops, cutting off our trade, and he is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation. A prince, our founders wrote, whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant as unfit to be the ruler of a free people. They concluded, we therefore representatives of this United States of America in general Congress assembled appealing to the supreme judge of the world. We have resolved that these United Colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. They have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do other things that independent states have a right to do. In the Articles of Confederation, we then read in Article 6 that the founders reserved all matters of war to Congress assembled. Article 6 reads, war powers reserved to Congress outside invasion triggered by a declaration of war. No state shall engage in war without the consent of the United States in Congress assembled unless each state be actually invaded. So each state could repel an invasion, but other than that, it was only in Congress assembled that the country could go to war. The Articles of Confederation went on to note that the declaration of war by Congress would prove the trigger for subsequent powers. The text continues, nor shall any state grant commissions to any ships or vessels of war, nor letters of mark or reprisal, except it be after a declaration of war by the United States in Congress assembled. Now, like the war powers, the framers reserved foreign affairs powers to Congress. No state without the consent of the United States in Congress assembled shall send embassy to or receive embassy from or enter into conference agreement alliance with any king or state. Now, as we all know, the Articles of Confederation proved inadequate for the challenges faced by our, our nascent country. And so the framers drafted the US Constitution. They were acutely aware of the perils of concentrated power. Mm -hmm. So even as they strengthened government, they divided between federal and state, and then amongst the federal government into the three branches. The idea is that the structure and the Bill of Rights would secure our liberty. Amongst the powers accorded, they put severe restrictions on the president's powers. This reflected their experience as Englishmen, as well as their experience as colonists, and their experience during the Articles of Confederation. The text and the history have 
a crude, if somewhat uh, you know, straightforward, division of the war power. So Congress has the authority to define and punish piracies and felonies, to declare war, uh, issue letters of mark and reprisal, and govern captures on land and water, to raise and support armies, to provide and maintain the Navy, and so on. The executive, in turn, is given the power to prosecute the war, the executive power in the vesting clause, the commander-in-chief clause, and the oath of office to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Now states, just as a note, continue to be specifically limited, as they were under the Articles of Confederation. So Congress, as a constitutional matter, has the power to move the country to a state of war, to take us from a state of peace to a state of engagement, and the president has the power to conduct that war, uh, not make the war. Now this is a, an important shift that was made during the Constitutional Convention. James Madison's records shed light on the specific clause. When considering this particular clause, the, the wording of Article 1811, Madison reports that Madison himself and Jerry moved to insert declare and strike out make war to leave to the executive the power to repel sudden attacks. Sharman, of course, thought it stood very well. The executive should be able to repel, much as the states had under the Articles of Confederation, but not to commence war. So make was, uh, uh, for him, make was better than declare, the latter narrowing the power too much for Congress. Jerry, of course, never expected to hear in a republic a motion to empower the executive alone to declare war. This was precisely what they were trying to do, was prevent what had happened in England. For Ellsworth, there was a material difference between making war, it should be harder to go into war. Therefore, you wanted the legislature to be the one to make the decision. Mason was against giving the power of war to the executive because it was not safely to be trusted with it. This was the lesson of Charles I, James II, and George III. He wanted to clog, rather facilitate war, but to facilitate peace. So we wanted the executive to be able to bring us to peace, but not to put us into war. And so we see from Madison's notes that there was a careful distinction drawn between moving the country to a state of war and prosecuting the conduct of war while still preserving for the executive the ability to repel attack. Well, why the aversion to war? Well, we look to the Federalist Papers and the Founders' writings, and we see that they were primarily concerned with both the resources involved, uh, as well as the social effects of this, and then the loss of life itself. In a country, in, in Washington's farewell address, you see him concerned that when we are drawn from so many different countries, we want to block our ability to get engaged in so many overseas conflicts. In Federalist 69, Hamilton explained that the decision was consciously made to, prever, to prevent a return to tyranny and British monarchical rule. The president was to be commander in chief. It amounted to nothing more than the supreme command and direction of the military and naval forces. All of the ideas of that, those powers of the British clean, king to declare war, to raise and regulate fleets and armies, all of that would appertain to the legislature. Thomas Jefferson similarly noted, we have already given an example, one effectual check to the dog of war by transferring the power of letting him loose to the executive, from, from the executive to the legislative body. In 1793, James Madison underscored that the executive had no independent right even to determine whether war was warranted. The power to declare war, including the power of judging the cause of war, is fully and exclusively vested in the legislature. The executive has no right in any case to decide the question whether there is or is not cause for going to war. 
Our first president, a general, interpreted the Constitution in precisely the same fashion. The Constitution vests the power of declaring war in Congress. Therefore, no offensive expedition of importance can be undertaken until after they shall have deliberated upon the subject and authorized such a measure. This was, in fact, the universal understanding of war powers at the time. William Peterson, who was one of the framers and a Supreme Court justice, thus explained uh, it was the exclusive province of Congress to change from a state of peace to a state of war. James Wilson, one of the framers and a ratifier of the Constitution, similarly noted that the system was built to prevent us from going to war. And so when on December 7th of 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor the following day, December 8th, Congress declared war against Japan, Germany, and Italy. It was an easy case. It was a paradigm case under Article 1811. In 1964, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution played a key role in authorizing the use of conventional military force in Southeast Asia. Now, the language said that Congress approves and supports the determination of the president as commander-in-chief to take all necessary measures and repel any armed attack against the forces of the United States and to prevent further aggression. There was considerable concern at the time that the measure was not sufficient for constitutional purposes. Uh, it enabled LBJ to take all necessary steps, including the use of armed force, to assist any member of protocol state of the Southeast Asia Collective Defense Treaty requesting assistance. Now, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was not withdrawn until 1971. In the case of the Korean War, 1950 to 1953, there was no domestic law enactment at all, save the funding. Truman committed troops initially as a police action. The UN authorized collective use of force. These played a, a key role in generating the War Powers Resolution, specifically the lack of an end to the military authorities. That legislation perceived, responded to a perceived overexpansion by the executive branch of its executive war-making powers. So the joint, the joint resolution of Congress uh, began in section two by stating that the intent of the resolution was to fulfill the intent of the framers of the Constitution and ensure that the collective judgment of both the Congress and the President will apply to the introduction of US armed forces into hostilities or into situations where imminent involvement in hostilities is clearly indicated by the circumstance. Um, it's worth noting that this is actually itself slippage from what the founders, as you looked at the previous language, they talked about war, not hostilities. And so even the language of the War Powers Resolution you see is slippage from the original meaning and understanding of the Constitution. It went on to state in Section 2C the constitutional interpretation for Congress of exactly what its war powers were. The constitutional powers into situations uh, are exercised only pursuant to, one, a declaration of war, two, specific statutory authorization, or three, a national emergency created by an attack on the United States, its territories or possess possessions or its armed forces. This understanding in 2C, uh, President Obama agreed with this. Now, Section 8 of the War Powers Resolution, uh, let's see. Uh, underscores the appropriations uh, point here, which is specifically that it is not sufficient when Congress authorizes appropriations for military action 
that that fulfills con Congress's responsibility under Article 1811 of declaring war. And this was really a response to Vincent's dissent in Youngstown, where he said in, 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 you know, against the court's ruling that Truman did not have the authority to seize the mill, that in fact, because Congress had appropriated the war, it should be understood as condoning the President's actions in that regard. So appropriations, however, from the War Powers Resolution forward are explicitly excluded from being sufficient uh, to infer congressional authorization for war. And so we get to the 2001 AUMF. What exactly does this resolution issued 17 years ago authorize? Well, it authorizes the president to use force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided, note past tense, in each of these cases, the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11th. And so we get to ISIL. Well, the first thing to note is the 2001 AUMF does not apply to ISIL. It is not part of Al-Qaeda. It is diametrically opposed to and in fact in battle with Al-Qaeda. It has different founding, different leadership, different identity, different geographic origins, different goals, different enemies, different targets, and different methods. So for instance, ISIL did not exist on 9-11. In contrast, Al-Qaeda is responsible for 9-11. ISIS only came to fruition following the U.S. attack of Iraq in 2003. It initially coalesced around al-Zarqawi, a Jordanian who refused to swear loyalty to al-Qaeda. After months of negotiation, he finally pledged his loyalty in 2004, becoming al-Qaeda in Iraq, but then later split from al-Qaeda. In contrast, al-Qaeda, which emerged before 9-11, came out of the anti-Soviet jihad in Afghanistan in the 1980s and mid-1990s. Osama bin Laden wanted to reorient a global movement. As for leadership, they have different leaders, al-Zarqawi and al-Baghdadi, uh, as opposed to Osama bin Laden and al-Zawahiri for al-Qaeda. They have different identity. From 2013, they're called the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. In 2014, it became the Islamic State. It swept across Iraq, capturing major cities like Mosul, Tikris, Stams, oil refineries, border crossings. It declared itself a caliphate, uh, and Baghdadi was the, was the caliph for it. In contrast, Al-Qaeda created a specific organization in Syria predominantly comprised of Syrians al-Nusra Front. As a Syrian spin-off, al-Baghdadi uh, declared, uh, uh, declared that al-Nusra was part of ISIL, uh, but in fact al-Nusra objected. They said, no, we are part of al-Qaeda. And in 2014, Zawahiri publicly disavowed uh, Baghdadi's group. The origins of ISIS and ISIL are Iraq and Syria. The origins of al-Qaeda are in Afghanistan. The goals are to purify the Islamic community for ISIS by attacking Shia and other religious minorities, rival jihadist groups. Al-Qaeda's objectives are different. They want to overthrow a corrupt apostate regimes in the Middle East, replace them with true Islamic governments. They do not support killing Shias. The enemies, the main enemies for ISIS and ISIL are the apostate re regimes in the Arab world, the Iraqi Shia, the Lebanese Hezbollah, Yaz, uh, Yazidis, the rival opposition groups in Syria, including al-Nusra, which is part of al-Qaeda. In contrast, al-Qaeda is targeting the West. That is what 9-11 was all about, and the attacks in Dar es Salaam and Kenya, uh, as well as the uh, other attacks that subsequently occurred. 
The targets themselves are different. For ISIS and ISIL, the targets are in Iraq and Syria and other Muslim countries like Libya. Uh, it, they might inspire lone wolves, but they certainly aren't putting their resources directly towards attacks in the West. In contrast, Al-Qaeda is. They're focusing on domestic, US and Western allies. And finally, their methods are very different. While ISIS and ISIL are trying to gain control over territory and govern it, uh, steadily consolidate and expand their position, create a government ruled by that group's understanding of Islamic law, um, have violence towards individuals that's extremely brutal, uh, which led to a backlash from Al-Qaeda uh, and the Sunni tribes. It uses artillery, massive, uh, massive forces, tanks, Terrorism is part of its broader revolutionary war. It uses mass executions and public beheadings, rape and symbolic crucifixion to terrorize populations it wants to control. In contrast, Al-Qaeda uses terrorism, really copying the Hezbollah bombings of the Marine barracks in Lebanon. It uses propaganda. It favors large-scale dramatic attacks against strategic or symbolic targets to try to win people over to its cause. If we look at the timeline, uh, the source of authority that was asserted uh, when we started going after ISIS and ISIL, initially uh, Obama uh, claimed Article 2 powers. That lasted about 24 hours before they followed it up by claiming that the 2001 AUMF was sufficient for the actions against ISIS and ISIL. Then, within a month, the 2002 AUMF, there's a wonderful exchange backward and forward on this on the lawfare and just security sites. Uh, in 2015, Obama went to Congress and requested a new AUMF. Uh, Congress did not pass one. Congress did not give Obama the authority to engage in action against ISIS and ISIL. In 2017, the United States, of course, continued these strikes against uh, ISIS in Syria. So where are we in this conflict? Well, to date, uh, this was, uh, this, these are the latest numbers that are available online in Operation Inherent Resolve. We have had 24,566 strikes against an organization for which there is no declaration of war. It has cost the United States $14.3 billion going after ISIS and ISIL. Just to conclude, I would say quadrat demonstratum. It is unconstitutional for us to continue this fight against ISIS or ISIL without an explicit declaration from Congress. A declaration of war would be firmly within Article 1811, and AUMF would also be based on the 2001 and 2002 AUMF seems to be how Congress is heading on this. However, without that, Article 2 powers alone are insufficient. The 2001 AUMF is inapplicable. The 2002 AUMF dealt with the current Iraqi regime. Uh, this is not the current Iraqi regime that we are fighting. This is a small, not a small, a different organization that is fighting in Iraq. There is an argument to, to be raised that this is self-defense and in defense of Iraq and what is happening, and I'm sure we'll get into this um, in the discussion afterwards. However, under the 2002 AUMF, it was dealing all of the whereas preliminary statements deal with the current government of Iraq. This is not what the current government of Iraq was when we went in. At the same time, there is no UN Security Council resolution to support under Article 3 of the 2002 AUMF, and keeping in mind that the 2015 AUMF request was denied by Congress. If it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck and unconstitutional. Thanks. Somebody can change the slides.
52 seconds. I'll reserve it. I didn't say you could reserve it. I just had <laughs> time left. <laughs> You're a great boy. Such a good way to talk. It's not really a debate, but it's such a good I should have done that for you. I will have to look at your slides later because I'm sure they were beautiful. And there is no remote here, is that right? We just hit the forward button. All right, that works. Okay, just a second. Now I'm on the clock. Okay, that works. All right, well, Laura and I have agreed to focus. I was concerned there were lots of different potential ISIS or AUMFs, and we've agreed to talk about ISIL. Uh, in addition to being named Commander-in-Chief in Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, the President is also given the general control of foreign affairs, of external of foreign intercourse. Where does the Constitution place this power? In Article 2, Section 1, which says the executive power shall be vested in the President of the United States. The framers understood the term executive power as it was used by Locke, Montesquieu, and Blackstone. This was what Locke described as the business of war, peace, leagues, and alliances. And Locke dubbed it the federative power. Well, Montesquieu, Blackstone, and others referred to it as part of the executive power there being an executive power over domestic law and an executive power over uh, foreign intercourse. And this was because it was widely understood that Congress lacked the institutional competency to act with unity of plan or unity of design, secrecy or speed and dispatch. They couldn't keep secrets, they couldn't make quick decisions, and thus this business had to be left in the hands of the executive. I first got involved in these issues in 1966 when I attended a lecture by Quincy Wright, who was then teaching at the University of Chicago. He later came here and taught for many years in our Department of Government and Foreign Affairs, where I later taught for several years. And Quincy Wright noted that the need for concentration of power for the successful conduct of foreign affairs was dwelt upon by Locke, Montesquieu, and Blackstone, the political bibles of the Constitutional Fathers. Ed Corwin, certainly one of the most distinguished constitutional scholars of the early 20th century in this country and a professor at Princeton, said the fact is that what the framers had in mind was the balanced constitution of Locke, Montesquieu, and Blackstone, which had separation of powers in domestic areas, but also had a broad range of autonomous executive power or prerogative. Lou Hinken, my, my late friend, very distinguished leading scholar on foreign affairs, noted in his 1972 book, The Control of American Foreign Relations, that the executive power was not defined because it was understood by framers raised on Locke, Montesquieu, and Blackstone. How do we know the fathers chose this definition of foreign affairs? Because they told us so. Tom Jefferson was our first Secretary of Foreign Affairs. And he, in, in an in April 1790 memo to President Washington, he noted the Constitution had given the executive power to the president subject to certain negatives uh, uh, given to the Senate. The Senate can veto a treaty, the Senate can veto a diplomatic appointment, and so forth. 
And Jefferson went on to say the transaction of business with foreign nations is executive altogether. It belongs then to the head of that department, except as to such portions as are specially submitted to the Senate, which were to be construed strictly. Three days later, Washington wrote in his diary that he had discussed Jefferson's memo with James Madison, member of the House of Representatives, and that Madison's view agreed with Jefferson and Chief Justice John Jay that the Senate had no constitutional right to interfere in foreign affairs except for their narrowly construed exceptions. All the rest, he said, being executive and vested in the president by the Constitution. Where in the Constitution? Article 2, Section 1. Jefferson's chief rival in Washington's cabinet, Alexander Hamilton. Hold on just a second. I just realized my timer stopped. And I could go on for probably... You're timing me, okay. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was Jefferson's chief rival, and he announced three years later, as the participation of the Senate in the making of treaties and the power of the legislature to declare war are exceptions out of the general executive power vested in the president. They are to be construed strictly and not to be extended no further than is essential to, the, to their execution. And thus we find the interpretation that the executive power grant gave the president general control over foreign affairs embraced by the first president, who was also president of the Constitutional Convention, the first and third chief justices, Jay and uh, Marshall, the heads of both political parties, Jeff George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, all three authors of the Federalist Papers, and yet today law school casebooks seldom even discuss this as a grant of affirmative power. I mentioned Congress. Thomas Jefferson noted when he was president, the Constitution has made the executive the organ for managing our intercourse with foreign nations from the origin of the present government, that is George Washington's first term, to this day it has been the uniform opinion and practice the whole foreign fund was placed by the legislature on the footing of a contingent fund in which they undertake no specifications but leave the whole to the discretion of the president. Imagine that today, Congress just appropriating money for foreign intercourse and not adding hundreds of pages of constraints and restrictions, which the framers clearly would have thought were unconstitutional. And let's not forget the Supreme Court. By far the most frequently cited Supreme Court case on, separate, on foreign affairs is United States versus Curtis Wright Export Corporation, 1936 where the court noted into the field of negotiation the Senate cannot intrude and Congress itself is powerless to invade it. That's not the current view, but that was the view of the country through our, through our first 170 years or so of our history. <coughs> In Hague versus Agee, the Supreme Court noted that the court has often recognized the generally accepted view that foreign policy was the province and responsibility of the executive. And this consensus extended until late in the Vietnam War, around the early 1970s, when all of a sudden Congress started passing things like the War Powers Resolution, FISA, uh, Hughes-Ryan, and all sorts of other statutes claiming a right to access to intelligence secrets, for example. Read Federalist 64. John Jay made it clear that the president under the Constitution was left, quote, able to manage the business of intelligence as prudence may suggest. That was the understanding of all three branches. When Congress first appropriated money for foreign intercourse, 
They said specifically in the bill, the president shall account specifically for all such expenditures as in his judgment can be made public and for the amount of other expenditures. So Congress could replenish the kitty. Congress could not keep secrets. Congress did not ask for national security secrets until actually about the time I started working in Congress, although I don't think there's a correlation in that. One example, J. William Fulbright, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in a speech at Cornell Law School, noted the preeminent responsibility of the president for the formulation and conduct of American foreign policy is clear and unalterable. Now, that's not true. We can alter the Constitution. We can amend it. But short of amending the Constitution, this is the president's authority, widely understood. And note Fulbright did not just say the president is communicator in chief, <clears throat> but Congress can tell him what the policy should be. He's responsible for the formulation as well as the execution. Now let's turn to whether we need an AUMF. First of all, declare war was a term of art from the law of nations. It pertained to all out what they call perfect war, when all the people of one country were placed at war with all the people of another country in a non-defensive setting. Aggressive war. This kind of war was outlawed first in the Kellogg-Briand Treaty in 1928 and more clearly in uh, Article 2.4 of the United Nations Charter. No country has clearly declared war since World War II. That term is, that provision of the Constitution is as much an anachronism today as the provision in the same Senate's granting Congress the power to issue, to grant letters of market reprisal. These were authorizations for ship owners to take their ships out of the high seas and capture enemy ships, usually commercial ships, although they could take out a warship if they had the stones for it. Uh, and, uh, uh, but then they would bring them into port, they'd take them before a prize court, and the court would determine whether this was in fact owned by an enemy citizen. It would order the sale of the ship and the money would be distributed according to a plan set forth by law. Uh, but these letters of bark and reprisal were outlawed by the Pact of Paris in 1856. We didn't sign that, but in 1888 we announced, yes, we understand letters of market reprisal are now illegal under international law. We've not issued one since the War of 1812. And yes, Congress has the power to grant letters of market reprisal if we decided to violate international law. But essentially, since that would be illegal, that clause is an anachronism. In the same way, the kind of war formally associated with formal declarations of war has been outlawed under international law. It did not include control over force short of war. Hugo Grotius, often called the father of modern international law, noted that no declaration was required when one is repelling an invasion or, quote, seeking to punish the actual author of some crime. Think about Saddam Hussein. Think about Assad. Think about some of the other criminals out there who were violating international law and threatening the peace. Gentili, one of, a contemporary of Grotius, when war is undertaken for the purpose of necessary defense, the declaration is not at all required. Congress has formally declared war 12 times in five wars. I think you're all familiar with those. They're up in the board. Well, no, they're not. I've got time constraints. The Supreme Court held as early as 1800 that Congress could authorize the use of force without formally declaring war. In Bass versus Tingey and Talbot versus Seaman, in, in, in 1967, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee was pushing the National Commitments Resolution, and they noted 
that the president had the power to initiate uh, hostilities pursuant to joint resolutions such as the Gulf of Tonkin. And the Gulf of Tonkin was an absolute authorization for the president to use war, to use force as he deemed necessary. Not just in Vietnam, but also in Cambodia and Laos. It actually didn't mention South Vietnam in the operative language. It referred to the protocol states of the CEDAW Treaty. And those protocol states were the states of Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, later known as the Republic of Vietnam or South Vietnam. Congress has enacted 11 AUMFs in our history. But Congress has used force, has, has, sorry, but presidents have used force abroad or threatened to use force, sent forces into harm's way more than 200 times. In the Verdugo case, the Supreme Court noted the U.S. frequently employs armed forces outside of this country over 200 times for the protection of American citizens or our national security. Now, is there a need for a new AUMF? The short answer is no. First of all, and very importantly, Laura talked about we need a declaration of war. Declarations of war establish relationships between sovereign states. ISIS is not, in fact, a sovereign state. It does not have the attributes necessary for international personality for statehood. If we were to declare war against ISIS, that would greatly strengthen their claim to, in fact, be the Islamic State because that would be evidence that one of the most powerful countries in the world, perhaps the most powerful country in the world, recognizes they are, in fact, a sovereign state. Uh, declarations of war were never issued when there were not sovereign states on both sides. Uh, neither the War Powers Resolution or any other legislative act can usurp the president's powers under the Constitution. I know that's a radical claim today, but the Founding Fathers understood it clearly. Uh, indeed, a, a formal declaration of war might be the best, ISIS might well buy us dinner if we were to recognize them as a sovereign state by declaring a war. Next principle, the 2000 AUM clearly does cover ISIS. You've heard the text before, I've got it up here on the screen. First question is, who decides? And it says, the president decides. The fact that I didn't vote for him doesn't change his powers under the Constitution. Now, was, was ISIS, was, sorry, was Al-Qaeda one of those organizations the president could fairly determine was involved in the 911 attacks? Does anybody in the room doubt that Al-Qaeda had something to do with the 911 attacks? Good, good. Now, what about Al-Qaeda of Iraq? A splinter group from, from uh, Al-Qaeda. Did it? have some connection once it became part of Al-Qaeda with those attacks? Well, obviously so. But wait a minute, it changed its name and it became more radical. I mean, if the SS in World War II had started calling itself the AA, would that have immunized its soldiers from attack? This is absurd. It was part of Al-Qaeda. It continued doing the same kinds of attacks. Yeah, there are some differences, but again, the president determines. Now, can we say that ISIS is a splinter group from Al-Qaeda? I think we can. Does anybody else agree? I, I, I hate to say this because my mom loves me, but my opinion on this is really not very important. How about the members of the United Nations Security Council? The Security Council has repeatedly and unanimously declared that ISIS is a splinter group of Al-Qaeda. 2014 UN Resolution 2170, uh, uh, let's see, re reiterating its condemnation of ISIL 
and all other individuals, groups, undertaken entities associated with Al-Qaeda, and then went on to say, observes that ISIL is a splinter group of Al-Qaeda. Resolution 2253 of 2015, recalling that ISIL is a splinter group of Al-Qaeda. I submit that when the UN Security Council unanimously declares that ISIL, or ISIS as I prefer, is a splinter group of Al-Qaeda, the president is on strong grounds when he makes the same claim. Now I think there could be very strong benefits if we could get the United States Congress to stand up behind the president, flex the nation's muscles and tell the bad guys, we're behind the president, we are going to act if you don't stop misbehaving. Sadly, I don't think that's politically possible. And I don't think it is necessary as a constitutional principle. First of all, there is nothing in the Constitution that requires an AUMF after the 911 attacks. Even Section 2C2 of the War Powers Resolution specifically noted that the President has the power without acts of Congress to use force in response to a national emergency created by attacks on the United Nations or its territories or possessions or its armed forces. In December 1984, I had a wonderful debate with Jacob Javits, former senator from New York and the author, principal author of the War Powers Resolution, and I noted this clause is unconstitutional because it excludes the president's power to use armed forces to protect Americans abroad. And to my, I was the acting assistant secretary of state for congressional relations at the time, and to my shock, during his rebuttal, Senator Javits said, Secretary Turner is correct. He said, the president does have that power, and we tried to get the House of Representatives to put that in the bill, but they refused to do so. And I can't tell you how much I wanted in my rebuttal to say, so you passed an unconstitutional statute in violation of your oath of office, but this is a room filled with elderly Jewish men who worship Jacob Javits, the big old New York court, courtroom, and I figured I wouldn't get out of the room alive if I insulted him. And besides that, I basically liked him. I'd worked with him for five years when I worked with the Foreign Relations Committee. And he was a good man, but he was not telling the truth on this issue, and he knew better. Was there an attack on the United States on 9-1-1? I think we can agree on that one. So while I think there could be great political benefit of having a bipartisan Congress, allowing politics to stop at the water's edge in the great Vandenberg tradition, and then in, uh, enacting a new AUMF, I just don't see that happen politically. Sadly, the leaders of our parties seem to hate each other more than they do our enemies around the world, and that's very sad. Furthermore, there have been enough ISIS attacks on Americans uh, to, uh, to authorize the use of force in this case. You'll remember the San Bernardino shooting, uh, the uh, Florida nightclub where 50 people were killed. Uh, our NATO allies, you remember them, uh, a number of attacks in Europe, uh, London, Paris, France, remember in Nice, France, where the guy drove the truck into the crowd and killed uh, 80 people? Uh, Paris again? Remember under the NATO treaty, we have pledged our sacred honor to consider an armed attack against any of our NATO allies in Europe or North America to be an attack against us. What does the Constitution say when we are attacked? 
As president, the commander-in-chief, the president can use force without getting a declaration of war from Congress. ISIS is not a sovereign state, again. So as a matter of constitutional and international law, a declaration of war is not necessary, nor is an AUMF. Senator Tim Kaine, who's a very decent man, very principled man, and he has been pushing an AUMF and saying it's unconstitutional to fight without it. I think he would vote for it. But he wants to tie the president's hands and say, let's fight with one hand or maybe both hands tied behind our back. After all, we're bigger than they are, and all they want to do is cut our heads off or blow us up. So one of his provisions is this statute would sunset after three years. That's never happened before. On August 17th, 1787, uh, at the Federal Convention, James Madison and Elbers Jerry introduced an amendment to change make war to declare war, reducing the power of Congress and the power to make war to the power to declare war, a term of art from the law of nations. Right after that, somebody else moved to give Congress also the power of peace since they were to have the power of war. There are no surviving debates. All we know is that motion was defeated unanimously. The founding fathers absolutely unanimously rejected giving Congress any role in the ending of war. Now, obviously, they have the power of the purse, which means they don't have to appropriate new funds. I would argue they have no power to tell the president how to spend funds that have been appropriated, as they did in Vietnam. That's another, another issue. Uh, he also would prohibit U.S. ground forces. That's not within the power of Congress to declare war. That's part of the commander-in-chief's power in deciding how to fight the war. And finally, he would require transparency this is a little bit ambiguous, but he seems to be saying we would announce in advance what we're going to attack, when, and perhaps with what weapons, and so forth. It's like he missed the Vietnam War. The Constitution gives Congress a veto over a decision to launch an all-out aggressive war. It does not give the Congress the power to conduct war or to tell the President how he shall conduct war. Such declarations have never told the President how to fight the war, to make battle plans public, or to surrender after three years if Congress can't reenact the statute. I sometimes wonder, three years after we started, we went into World War II. We didn't really start it. We responded to attacks on the United States. We had the Battle of the Bulge, which in a very short period killed or wounded 89,000 Americans. What would happen if Congress had been called upon about that time to reauthorize war? I'm not sure we would have gotten it. I, we might all, we might all be speaking German today. Nothing in the Constitution requires congressional authorization for the work, the president to work with allies to stop ISIS from continuing to slaughter innocent people and to kill Americans. The supremacy clause of Article Four declares treaties to be this part of the supreme law of the land. Article 2, Section 3, both empowers and obligates the president to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. It was understood by the framers and re-debated re in 1945 during the UN Charter debates, and it was understood that the president is empowered by the Constitution to use force to fulfill our military obligations. Now, the War Powers Resolution pretends that can't be done. And then the question comes up, which prevails, a more recent law of Congress or the clear language of the Constitution itself? 
Some of you law students may remember a very esoteric old case called Marbury versus Madison, where the Supreme Court said a, an act of Congress repugnant to the Constitution is void. I would submit that is still good law. During the Jonathan Robbins affair in 1800, Congressman John Marshall uh, defended President Adams' decision to turn over a British deserter to the British Navy pursuant to an article of the Jay Treaty, an, ex an extradition clause. And he said the president is the sole organ of the nation in its external relations. He possesses the whole executive power. He holds and directs the force of the nation, and thus any act to be performed by the force of the nation is to be done through him. He's charged with executing the laws. A treaty is declared to be a law, and thus the president had the power to do this. And that view was accepted by both Republicans and Democrats. Indeed, for two months, the Republicans have been trying to push through a resolution of censoring John Adams for turning over Jonathan Robbins, uh, also known as Thomas Nast, who claimed to be not a British deserter but an American citizen from Danbury, Connecticut. And the fact that the, 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 the fathers of Danbury submitted an affidavit saying nobody here has ever heard of this guy uh, may suggest that this guy was uh, like a lot of defendants these days. Uh, you know, uh, I was trying to give her purse back to her at the ABM. I don't know why she says I was trying to steal her purse, but uh, anyway. Now, this does not affect the power of Congress to declare war against another sovereign state. That power has been affected by international law, and thank God it has. We have outlawed the type of aggressive war that was once lawful. For Congress to tell the president how to fight the conflict, to require him to reveal battle plans in advance to the enemy, is as unconstitutional as it is foolish. One minute, okay, that's pretty good timing. The president is commander-in-chief. The Supreme Court has said repeatedly, Congress cannot direct the conduct of campaigns. First at Ex parte Milligan and more recently in the Hamdan case in 2006, where the majority uh, opposed it. And uh, with that, I think I've timed it just perfectly. And uh, Lori's going to tell you why I'm wrong, but I will be back. Oh, I love that picture of you. If you want that down, I can take that down, sorry. I thought it was too. I actually searched a lot. I was afraid I was gonna get hit with a restraining order for stalking or something because I looked through all the pictures to find one that was especially attractive. But, uh, they all were especially attractive. And that's actionable for sure. There, sorry, Laura, I'm walking off of your remote. All right, that's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> all right, um, so I'm, I'm reminded again why I love debating Bob, and we actually do this about once a year on, on various topics. This is our first time engaging on ISIS and ISIL. Um, and as much as I do love, I, I love engaging with them because as, an, as a fellow historian, it's great to talk about the history. Uh, and as much as I do love engaging, I am going to say once again, I just see things very differently from you. And there are two arguments that I'd like to bring up in my rebuttal. First, on the foreign affairs argument, that, uh, that is that it is entirely in the executive hands, uh, this is just wrong. It misreads the text of the Constitution, the history of the Constitution, and political theory at the time. The second point I'll turn to then after that is uh, the attempt to support uh, the assertion that the executive has access to classified material or classified operations. Uh, that is true. It is not the 
the only branch with access to classified material and classified operations. And in fact, if you look across the branches, this undermines uh, Bob's argument. So first, on the foreign affairs point, you know, he is entirely right that Locke, Montesquieu, and Blackstone did play an important role in the formation of the US Constitution. Remember, however, that Blackstone also thought that Parliament was supreme and that Locke referred to the federative power, not the executive power. And so what the founders did was they took these historical texts along with many others, not just Locke's second treaties, but the entire panoply oops, of Cook's writings. They looked at uh, Hawkins, they looked at Bracton, they looked at a range of legal treatises, they looked at a range of political theory, and they adopted a uniquely American American view. And the American view divided foreign affairs powers just as it divided war powers amongst the branches. So the, the Madisonian view, he lays this out in the Federalist Papers, is that two-thirds ratification of treaties by the Senate, uh, that the power to raise armies and declare war, that the appointments clause for ambassadorial powers and other clauses in the Constitution show that the federative power, now known as what was traditionally seen as wholly within the monarch, has been divided in the United States. Curtis Wright, in this context, it can only be seen as a concomitant of sovereignty, the fact that we have to treat with foreign nations. It does not then give the president the sole authority and foreign affairs powers. If we look at the vesting clause, which is really the origins of uh, Bob's claim that the executive has full power here, why would they continue with the powers subsequently noted, just as a textualist approach, if they intended that vesting clause to convey its own independent executive power? So it goes on to lay out the commander-in-chief authorities. It goes on to lay out the pardon power, except in cases of impeachment, the power to make treaties by and with the consent of two-thirds of the Senate. The second point to make about the vesting clause is it was actually a response to the fact that many of the colonies and states immediately after independence experimented with dual executives, that there was more than one person or body involved in the executive power. And so the Madisonian read, um, and in fact the read we get in Youngstown as well in Jackson's concurrence, is this idea that actually the vesting clause just says there will be one president. That's all it does. And then the subsequent powers go on to lay out what the president can do. The key to understanding foreign affairs, as the founders remind us in the Federalist Papers, is that of a watered down prince. It is a tamed prince who's been democratized by the colonists' view and their despairing kind of treatment of the monarchs of the past, of Charles I, who was beheaded, of James II, the Glorious Revolution, and George III's transgressions. So Hamilton, in Federalist 67, 68, and 69, writes about this watered down and tamed prince. And in Federalist 67, he writes, he, the executive, this is one of my favorite passages from the Federalist Papers, and there are many. I love Federalist 51, there's some great, great passages, but, but in this one, Hamilton says that the executive has been shown uh, to, uh, to us with the diadem sparkling on his brow and the imperial purple flowing in his train. He has been seated on a throne surrounded by minions and mistresses, giving audience to the envoys of foreign potentates and all the supercilious pomp of majesty, saying that you have, you have interpreted our understanding of the executive completely out of whack with what we actually design in the Constitution, which is a severely tamed prince. He goes on in Federalist 69 to distinguish the US president from a king in that they're limited in their terms. They can be impeached. Their veto can be overridden. They 
they have to have the consent of the Senate for their treaties and for their appointments, and it falls to Congress to actually take the country to war, unlike the monarchs of the British monarchy. The first significant construction of the Constitution actually repeats this. It was Congress who established an act, uh, who, who passed an act creating the Department of Foreign Affairs. They were divided on whether the president could even fire anybody in the Foreign Affairs Department. And in the end, it was a 10-10 vote. And the Vice President, John Adams, actually cast the vote in favor of Washington being able to actually fire somebody in the Department of Foreign Affairs. This was a power that was shared. On the second point uh, that I'd like to respond to, the intelligence point, the fact that the executive branch has secret programs or classification in no way means that the other branches do not or are forbidden from that realm. In fact, Congress has significant intelligence powers. The Atomic Energy Act of 1954 included provision for restricted data for nuclear matters. Executive Order 8381 in 1940, which was the first order establishing classification, cited a congressional statute in support of the authority to even have classification. Uh, they cited the statute of January 12th of 1938. The Senate and the House reserved the right to declassify material. So Senate Resolution 400 and then the rules of the House of Representatives, Rule 10G1 in 2017, uh, these rules allow for Congress to both classify and declassify materials. SISI retains control over its own records, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, one member. Members can declassify witness names. They can make information available to the Senate and the public in Rules 8 and 9. HIPSI, Rules 12A to B, have become, have extensive provisions for declassifying national security information. As soon as the executive provides it, it becomes committee material. In Rule 18, it imposes its own oath on committee members. In Rule 14, and it can release information for any other concerns, constitutional or otherwise, as may affect the public interest of the United States in Rule 14. The courts also seal and declassify materials. FOIA permits uh, the court to determine whether materials are properly classified pursuant to executive order. That's in 5 U.S.C. 552b1. In New York Times versus the United States, the court had no trouble declassifying material. In Horn versus Huddle, Chief Justice Lamberth uh, unsealed an entire case at the time. There are currently 60 Fisk opinions in the public domain that have been wholly or partially declassified. And Fisk Rules of Procedure, number 62, A, the presiding judge can sua sponte release any opinion and may or may not consult with the executive branch. So too for the Fiskar, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review. Rule 20 allows the court to declassify. So on the two points uh, raised uh, by Bob that I wanted to respond to, first on the foreign affairs argument, uh, he's ignoring the broader text, the history, and the actual distinction between the different powers meted out to government to create a tamed prince. And second, on the fact that you have intelligence and classified programs, that does nothing to claim that you have exclusive power. It just means that you have some power in, an, in a classified realm. The other branches also have access to classification. I had a bunch of stuff here that I was going to go in from her first remarks, but let me just focus on her rebuttal. First of all, isn't she fantastic? I absolutely love debating Laura just because she is so good. She is as bright as any 
national security lawyer I know. She understands history better than I think any of them, and, uh, and she's right on much of her history. Uh, she's correct, the Senate has negatives under our Constitution, and that was a departure from the philosophy of Locke and Montesquieu and Blackstone. <coughs> but it was widely understood, very broadly understood, these were to be construed narrowly. Yes, they had a negative over a treaty. They had a, it was an undemocratic negative. It required two-thirds of the senators present voting to approve a treaty so the president could ratify it. They had a negative over uh, a, a diplomatic appointment and a military appointment uh, confided in 50% of the Senate. You needed a majority to confirm. But that was the limit. They were not then given the general power to tell the president how to conduct foreign affairs. I wrote a 1,700-page doctoral dissertation with over 3,000 footnotes that I am now trying to get ready to publish as a trilogy. I have two publishers at one. It's called National Security and the Constitution. And it gives all sorts of examples where Congress acknowledged that it would be inappropriate for Congress to t tell the president how to conduct foreign affairs. <coughs> Just one example, when the Secret Service Fund was first created in 1790, it said specifically the president didn't have to tell us how he spent the money. And in 1818, when somebody raised a question in the, in the House about three Americans who were traveling around Latin America claiming to represent the president, and somebody in the House said, these people haven't been confirmed by the Senate as ambassadors or anything like that, what's going on? Henry Clay stood up and said there was an, a, a contingency fund of $50,000 given to the president in which he is to use his own discretion, and it would not be a proper subject for inquiry by Congress as to how he spent that money. This was executive business. If I heard her right, she said the vesting clause was only to establish that we have one president. She's certainly right. It was a debate about having a multiple president, either a president with a cabinet that had a veto over his decisions or perhaps a triumvirate of three presidents. And some people do believe that today. In fact, it's not uncommon. But Tom Jefferson, James Madison, John Marshall, George Washington, John Jay, you know, the, the, the conventional wisdom was that the grant of executive power was the general control of foreign intercourse. And, you know, if, if Laura really accepts another view, we, we need to hear more authority from the framers, from the people who wrote the Constitution, the people who, you know, early, early leaders and so forth. She said it belongs to Congress to take the nation to war, or quoted something to that effect. Well, there are two kinds of war. There's a war, remember when the Constitution was written, every sovereign state had a right to go to war for any reason it wanted. States were the highest entity in the world. There was no world court, states were supreme. And you could go to war because you wanted to have territory. You could go to war because you wanted uh, to totally, t you know, uh, take an island or something, take treasure. Uh, if you had a really ugly son and the other guy had a really pretty daughter, you could say, I'm going to come kill all your people if you don't give me your daughter to marry my son. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff happened. And that kind of war required a declaration. And that declaration was subject to a veto or a negative by a one-house veto by Congress. Congress had to pass a law authorizing it. And there was another kind of force, defensive force, force used in self-help in response to a use of force. And that kind of force did not require 
a declaration of war. And indeed, that was discussed. The president can repel attacks, but he cannot commence war. He cannot, if we have a quarrel with Canada, the, the Canadian you know, prime minister's husband wears a suit to the ball, just like the husband to our president, uh, you, can't, uh, uh, you can't go to war because you're angry or for vengeance or something like that. If you are responding to a threat or use of military force, the president does not need a declaration of war or formal authorization. He may well need money. He may need troops. He may need weapons. And in that extent, Congress has a great deal of control over what he or she does. She says Congress created the Department of Affairs. That's true. But one of the things that several scholars have noted, including Charles Thatch and his great The Creation of the Presidency in 1922, is that they made no specification on what the President, the Secretary did, other than he shall carry out the will of the President. Yes, we had a unitary executive. All executive power is vested in the President. Article one gives the legislative power to a House and Senate, a Congress made up of two chambers. Article three, to the Supreme Court and such inferior courts as Congress may from time to time establish. Article two, the executive power shall be vested in a president. And thus the Secretary of State's job is not to conduct U.S. foreign policy, but rather to carry out the will of the president. Uh, and yes, it is true. They discussed who could remove the secretary, and that's another point in my favor. Why? Because the original argument, well, well the bill doesn't say who can remove the president, but since he's appointed with the advice and consent of the Senate, obviously the president would need the advice and consent of the Senate to remove him. No, Madison got up and said, wait a minute, the removal is by its nature an executive function. Article two, section one gives the executive power to the president. Congress, or the Senate, not Congress, not part of Congress, but the Senate in its executive function is joined only in the appointment phase. And thus the Senate has nothing to do with the removal of the Secretary of Foreign Affairs, save in the case of impeachment, another provision of the Constitution. This was again a recognition. One minute, thank you. Uh, oh, this one. I've spent an awful lot of time working with Congress and leaks. I was there when they passed most of the restrictions, all of a sudden claiming a power of Congress to have intelligence secrets. In 1957, Ed Corwin in the President's Office and Powers said it was firmly established that the President is final judge of what information he gives to Congress. The Supreme Court had repeatedly taken that view, including uh, in uh, uh, Curtis Wright. But Congress, particularly under a weak president, President Ford, who had never been elected to anything but Congress, passed laws and took over presidential power. Since then, they have leaked like a sieve, and it has undermined our security left and right. I'll leave you with a teaser for Q&A. Had Congress not enacted the unconstitutional FISA statute in 1978, and I worked on it as a Senate staff member, and I have an article coming out in the next issue of the George Mason Law Review explaining why it's unconstitutional, the 911 attacks would almost certainly not have happened. Why? Because they prevented the president from doing things that courts had consistently say he had the power to do. Congress lied when they passed FISA. The Supreme Court in, in the Keith case said 
The president needs a warrant when the target of a national security surveillance is a purely domestic threat, an American with no foreign ties. Ted Kennedy and others said, oh, the Supreme Court has asked us to pass a new law for foreign intelligence. No, they asked the president to pass a law, a, a wiretap law governing domestic threats to intelligence. Justice uh, Lewis Powell wrote that opinion. I have discussed it with him. When I chaired the ABA uh, Committee on the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, I, he was our counsel, one of our counselors, and I talked to him about it. And he agreed the president had the power to do this. So, you know, the FBI figured out Zacharias Massawi was a terrorist who wanted to learn how to fly an airplane to fly it into a building. That was pretty good. They could not get a warrant because Congress had said you cannot have a FISA warrant unless you can show the target is a, an agent of a foreign power. Not somebody who goes to their meetings or likes them or wears their button around, somebody who does the bidding of a foreign power. And we could not do that because we knew nothing about Massawi. And we went to the Brits and the French and others and said, do you have anything tying this guy to a foreign power? And the Brits ignored us for 15 days. And we repeatedly went back, this is really urgent, do you have anything? A few hours after the 911 attacks, the Brits gave us a file showing he had trained at an Al-Qaeda training camp in Al-Qaeda. And the, the only way we know this is because it's in a footnote in a massive Inspector General report in the Justice Department. And they say, we don't know why the British didn't share this earlier. And I, and I do, and the answer is we can't keep secrets and they could not jeopardize their source by sharing it. Had they shared it, it wouldn't have helped because it took over a month to get a FISA warrant, so we'd have still been waiting for the judge. But the point is, tremendous harm has been done by congressional usurpation. I thank you. Laura, you're absolutely fantastic. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Let me... Thank you. Thank you. David, you point to people. Uh, here we go. Uh, just one comment, uh, and then I'll ask a question. But um, my um, conclusion I've drawn is that we will will never have a legally required AUMF uh, because if the president, <coughs> if there is a sufficient basis, uh, the president can make the make a. Uh, can articulate a defensive position for the use of force, then he doesn't need the AUMF. If he can't articulate that position, the Congress is not going to pass anything. So, anyway. But, um, Laura, the question I've um, always been dying to ask somebody who dives into this issue is, what's the difference between making and declaring law war? Yeah, so they, they preserved the power of the president to repel territorial atta attacks on the territorial integrity of the United States. So if uh, the British you know, sent their navy to attack the United States, they didn't have to wait for Congress to convene in order, because they, they envisioned, actually this is in, in the, um, in the in Madison's notes of the convention, he also says, well, Congress is only con going to convene once a year, so if they don't happen to be in session while we're being attacked, the president can repel. So if you make war, um, that suggests, first of all, that Congress 
uh, has to be part of making the war and that Congress has a role in the conduct of the war. So the commander in chief powers are meant to be separated out from making war itself. So for both those reasons, the repelling attack and the prosecution of the war being in the hands of the president as commander of the military, they use the, the word declare. So now only Congress can move us to a position of being at war unless we're attacked. And in the conduct of that war, then the military reporting to the president makes the decisions about strategic moves. I, I, yeah, I, I, I largely agree. First, I agree with your first comment. I think it's, it's very perceptive. Uh, declare war was a term of art from the law of nations. It had to do with creating a relationship between one or, or between two or more sovereign states that put them in all-out war. Uh, for short of war was understood, as the Supreme Court has noted, we've done it over 200 times. Uh, and so it was a much narrower term. The framer, Madison, in his notes, noted that changing the language from make war to declare war would leave the president free to respond to sudden attacks. I think that means the president could act defensively. And indeed, there was somebody else later in that debate who referred to it as to act defensively, but not offensively or aggressively. Aggressive war slash offensive war is, is, is illegal today. I don't think we're going to do it, although one can argue Iraq was a, uh, an, an aggressive war. I don't think it was. I think we were responding to a long history of illegal actions by Saddam Hussein. May have been a boneheaded decision, but I don't think it was aggression. Uh, but, uh, you know, declare war is a much narrower term. Uh, and uh, again, I, I think that any use of force setting that legally required a declaration of war would be unlawful. Now, I'll note that U.S. practice has, has differed from that. We declared war in 1812, and I think one can make a case that was an aggressive war. If you note that the, the senators who supported going to war were mostly from the western states who wanted to move further west and not from the New England states who were, had you know, ships, ships going out and being harassed by, by the British, uh, I, I think uh, one, one can make a case that was an aggressive war. We declared war in uh, the Mexican-American War, Spanish-American War. Both of those, you can argue, were defensive. World War I and World War II were both clearly defensive, and yet we declared war. Why? Because it served very useful domestic purposes in terms of, uh, uh, of telling the people we were at war. And it also put the world on notice. But I do not think, under the concept of declaration of war as it's been historically understood, it was necessary. We were not launching an aggressive war. Remember, aggressive war was a right of states. It was not until the, the, the uh, Hague Conventions of the early 20th century that they tried to limit it, and then they had a convention that required a 30-day ultimatum before you could attack. But the ultimatum could be for anything. You know, we want, you, know you, you got a pretty daughter, uh, you know, give, her, give her to us or we're going to kill all your people. Nothing illegal about that. Uh, but again, what I argue is the, the, the types of force associated with formal declarations of war are anachronisms today, just as the power to grant letters of mark and reprisal, okay. which is not to say Congress has no role. This is important. Congress does not have to appropriate new money for military operations. So if the president gets into a major conflict, he needs more ammunition, more gunpowder, more aviation fuel. He has to get it from Congress. Article 1, Section 9 prohibits uh, spending money from the Treasury without appropriations made by law. Congress has a role. I do not think Congress has a role to tell him how to fight the war or how to spend the money. I don't think it's, it's, it's legal for them to pass a law 
saying, here's money appropriated for the war, but you can't put troops on this hill or you can only fight on Tuesday evenings or, you know, other conditions on how the war is fought. Okay, thanks, Bob. Any other questions? Okay, I think we're at the point then that uh, Professor Moore has some concluding remarks, uh, and then we'll bring a day to the close. Thank you very much, Laura and Bob, for a good discussion of AMF. Given that the hour is late, I'm going to uh, resist the urge to talk about all of the minor points uh, which uh, I think anyone who works in this area would have uh, after listening to such a rich discussion. But instead, I'm going to talk really about two issues in jus ad bellum law and then go back to the court and uh, deal with two of the questions I was going to ask the panel, and we run out, ran out of time for them. The first, why has the court uh, misstated the law so poorly in dealing with use ad bellum law? And the second, which I think is an even more important question, what should we be doing about it, given the enormous importance uh, of uh, the issue? Um, let me start, however, by going back to the starting point of where do we find jus ad bellum law and the starting point, I think, that we would all say is Article 2, subparagraph 4 of the United Nations Charter. Remember, in international law generally, activities are lawful unless they are otherwise uh, prohibited in international law. The prohibition on use of force in the United Nations Charter uh, is in Article 2, subparagraph 4. And yet, there has been a tendency to focus, I think, too much on Article 51. Now, this goes back uh, from my part in terms of really understanding why we needed the different focus to a wonderful doctoral dissertation that I had with one of my doctoral students at Georgetown. Uh, he was a Korean student who came to me and he said, uh, I don't have a subject to work on. I'd like to work in your area here in national security law, but I don't have a subject. And I said, well, there's one thing I've been very, very interested in over the years that no one has really done any very good work on. I would like a really well done travel, that is the legislative history of the use of force provisions of the United Nations Charter. And he wrote a magnificent hundreds of pages of um, an SJD dissertation, received his doctorate. Um, and sadly, that has never been published. Uh, Laura, you ought to look into that and get this, get this published because uh, for the most part, the travel of the UN Charter on use of force has not been understood. But if you go back and look at the travel, the starting point is the charter original language was just like basically what we were doing in Kellogg-Briand. That is, you had a prohibition 
for aggression, but you had nothing said about defense. And the charter was doing the same thing. This was not an effort to say that defense or anything else was illegal, because everyone under Kellogg-Briand had basically stated that the right of defense and all the other issues and use of force that existed before that that were lawful will continue uh, after Kellogg-Briand. And we were doing exactly the same thing in the initial versions of the charter. In come our Latin American friends and say, after seeing what happened in World War II and the failure of alliance systems and not having appropriate alliances, we want to make sure that our alliance system in this hemisphere that, that merges the Rio Treaty will have the ability to have a full right of individual and collective defense. So in the committee on the United Nations Charter that was dealing with regional arrangements, basically Article 51 was written. Where was the issue and where was the committee that was dealing with the question of use of force, prohibition of use of force generally? The answer is Committee 1. And Committee 1 started with very broad general language that said it was okay unless it was counter to the purposes and principles of the United Nations Charter. And then came the Prime Minister of Australia and said we need to add some other language in this. We're going to add the language territorial integrity or political independence. But he went on to say what that language meant. That language meant only that you could not basically absolve another state, that is Iraq basically annexing Kuwait, or you could not alter a boundary from a state. It was not a declaration that automatically uh, a use of military force taking place on another state, for example, is illegal under the United Nations Charter. There is absolutely nothing in the Travo that indicates that um, um, the lawful use of force, including, by the way, humanitarian intervention, if we're going to look to the Charter as the starting point, um, and the use uh, Kogans in dealing with this, nothing in that Travo that basically says humanitarian intervention is illegal. Nothing in that Travo, at least known to all of the delegates that were there, that said that anticipatory defense was illegal. Um, and so the real answer, the starting point, if you're going to look at use ad bellum, is Article 2, subparagraph 4. It is not Article 51. Article 51, in fact, has introduced a few things that I think are confusing generally to people. Prior to the um, negotiations leading to the UN Charter, and subsequently, including in the operation of the United Nations and the General Assembly Resolution, as well as in the International Criminal Court, we are not focused on the question of defining what is an armed attack. Uh, illegal use of force is always dealt with as aggression. Look at the title of Dr. Yoram Denstein's book, 
is absolutely correct, and that's the title of virtually everyone who's ever written on the question of uh, what are we looking at in lawful use of force, et cetera. There is no definition in the Charter in relation of, uh, as to uh, what is an armed attack, and the equally authentic French version uses armed, armé, aggression armé, armed aggression. Um, so there's a lot of, I think, confusion in relation to this. I also, as um, uh, was indicated earlier by Edwin Williamson, do not like the phrase self in terms of self-defense, which comes solely from Article 51. But the real right of defense and all the other legal rights in use of force under the UN Charter, uh, with the exception of that dealing with regional arrangements, uh, basically come from the prohibition relating to Article 2, subparagraph 4. But Article 2, subparagraph 4 doesn't say anything about, you know, self-defense. The real right is individual and collective defense. And I urge all of my students to talk individual and collective defense. Not the confusing individual and collective self-defense, which sounds as though somehow you have to be personally at stake in terms of being able to uh, be involved. Um, Dr. Uh, Joram Dinstein's absolutely correct this morning when he said no. Anyone in the world has the ability to engage lawfully in collective defense uh, in support of somebody that, that has an attack. So my starting point is I think a lot of the modern writing about use at Bellum uh, under the charter gets it wrong because it doesn't start from the right place. The right place is Article 2, subparagraph 4, and the real history of the Charter of what that means and where it came from. Um, yes, Article 51 is important. It basically gives you yet another area that if you comply is going to be lawful under the United Nations Charter. But it is not the exclusive uh, setting of lawful use of the force under the United Nations Charter. For example, the language itself doesn't really fit very well with anticipatory defense, saying if an armed attack occurs, and yet today we broadly uh, recognize anticipatory defense, if properly done under the circumstances of eminence or that paragraph eight that we were talking about in the uh, ASIL note or the uh, 2016 statement of what the U.S. Uh, had drafted. Second question I'd like to talk about is the notion of immediacy. As you know, one of the interesting things we have done from customary international law is to read into the Charter two requ requirements, necessity and proportionality. That is very broadly accepted and really comes back to the earlier tradition as well as to uh, lawful use of force and lawful use of force uh, requiring necessity and proportionality. Um, Dr. Denstein, you properly had in your list and raised, and I'm very glad you did, this notion of immediacy. I think you used it correctly, but I see it used incorrectly in many settings. Immediacy can have two separate, very different meanings. The first of those is to ask the question as to the closeness 
of an attack. How close is it that an attack is about ready to occur before the attack occurs? Immediacy is relevant as one of the circumstances, indeed one of the most important circumstances, in dealing with the question of anticipatory defense and use ad bellum precisely on that point. So in that sense, immediacy is very important. But I think uh, we're beginning to see uh, sort of an adding to necessity proportionality, the notion of immediacy in general, uh, sometimes used for something very different. And that is the closeness of the response to the attack. Um, you properly noted, um, Doctor, that basically there are a whole variety of reasons why we don't just simply say you've got to immediately be responding. I think you had on your list intelligence gathering. But there are a lot of others. Uh, one could be the whole effort to have a peaceful resolution of the dispute or have certain conditions met before we go into Afghanistan, for example. Or putting together the kind of military forces that are necessary to carry out the operation. Uh, which one does not automatically instantly have available. Uh, in my uh, judgment, there is no immediacy in this second sense. And so we should not generally be adding to necessity and proportionality an immediacy concept. To give you some examples where I've seen this abused as opposed to your correct statement of this, uh, Yoram, um, some years ago, when we were running a program in Sweden, the former Swedish ambassador to the United Nations right after Afghanistan came and gave me a copy of a statement he just delivered to the Swedish Military Academy on lawful use of force. It roundly condemned the United States in going into Afghanistan, saying it was too far after the fact that you could not do this, which was absurd. Uh, we tried initially to work diplomatically to avoid the issue, and then we took quite a while to put together the forces necessary uh, to go into Afghanistan. A second example is, uh, rather interestingly, the Secretary General of the United Nations in the run-up uh, in the Gulf War uh, basically uh, started saying, this was Perez de Suéar, that you could not now go into Kuwait defensively because too much time had elapsed. I immediately called uh, the legal advisor of the United Nations and said, oh, I'm sure he wouldn't have made a statement like that without a careful legal opinion, Edwin. And uh, they said to me, oh, no, 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 he's just talking on his own. Of course, just making this up on it. So I think there is some risk that it will be picked up from a setting where it makes sense in the use ad bellum uh, anticipatory defense setting and, and be thrown in generally into uh, a third uh, component with necessity and proportionality. Now let me get to the questions about the court. Why does the court do this? And actually, we had some discussions this morning about that that I think were all on point, but I'd like to add sort of a third reason. What were the first two that we 
heard this morning when the issue was, was raised by a number of, of uh, members of the audience. One was that to some extent, in a, few, in a few cases at least, this is simply reflecting judges taking orders or a kind of an anti-American setting that might be at work uh, or anti-whatever the country is that, that may be uh, in the setting. And I think to some extent there's some truth in that. In the Nicaragua case, there were substantial differences between the United States and France, for example, at the time. The French judge uh, was one of those that certainly voted against us very strongly. Uh, my former colleague, Hardy Dillard, who used to be on the court and who uh, was dean of this uh, uh, law school, uh, told me over and over again he believed that the then Soviet judge simply took orders, direct orders, uh, from Moscow as to how to vote in the individual case. So I think that's, that's part of it. I don't think that's the major part of it. I think that's a small, fairly small part of it. Um, a second part of it is one that uh, was also suggested earlier, and that is that these are basically international lawyers. They don't really specialize in use of force mostly, and those that do usually have good opinions in this. And they really think they're doing a good thing by restricting uh, across the board, whether it's in the defensive uh, level or otherwise, uh, use of force. In short, most of what's going on is these are good people uh, trying to promote the rule of law, but with a very wrong conception about what we're dealing with here which is a conjunction of aggression and defense and a normative system that we're trying to create to make a difference to stop that aggression. And if what you're doing is constantly cutting down the defensive right over here, whether it's in use ad bellum or use in bello, what you're doing is dramatically uh, enhancing the ability of the aggressor. And they don't really reflect on that. And yet that's what they're doing by a very mistaken effort to believe they're doing good in the world and restricting uh, use of force. There's a third possibility here. I know that uh, one of the um, very greatest experts on the court was Ambassador Shabtai Rosen of, of Israel. And I used to talk with Shabtai for hours about this question of um, how you're neutral, um, how really fundamentally committed to the rule of law are we seeing in relation to the, the court. And as you look at the data, for the most part, he and I agreed that it isn't a matter with some exceptions like the Soviet, then Soviet judge, of those from a particular country since simply supporting their own country. There's a little bit of that, but that's not most of it. But what it is, is more the normal human interest in what the economist won the Nobel Prize for some times ago, ago called government failure theory, that government officials have an interest 
in their own situation. What is your interest if you are a member of the International Court of Justice and under the statute of the court, you have a nine-year term, but you have the potential for a second nine-year term. Indeed, there's no restriction even on a third nine-year term. And how are you selected on that? A simple majority vote in the General Assembly and in the Security Council. Now, normally, if we really, really want rule of law, I think we have learned to be somewhat skeptical of elected judges and to be focused on judges for life or judges for a particular uh, definite period of time. And I think Shabtai's sense was that one of the things we were seeing in a number of, of decisions in areas in the ICJ was members of the court looking forward to another vote as to their second nine-year term. All of this gets to the last point. What do we do about all of this? Um, if there really is a serious problem in the court, in one of the most important areas of international life, that is, you said, Bellum, getting it wrong, and we all know, by the way, there, there are lots of groups out there that say we're wrong on this. No, the court's totally right. But I think most of the international lawyers that really work in this area have a pretty good sense what some of the major problems are. And if we're right, what do we do about it? Do we just simply do nothing? And I think the answer is there are a number of things that we can do that might make a difference. One of, the, one of them is states need to say something. I think the best is not just individual actions, though I agree with Ashley that one of the good things about the USAD Bellum provisions in this 2016 report is the United States has said something about these issues and put officially on the record what we believe the rules are. By the way, think about this. Isn't this beautiful? Here is the United States stating what we believe our views are, not a word about the complete inconsistency on many of those provisions of the decisions of the International Court of Justice. For example, flatly from the Israeli wall case saying there's no right to respond to non-state actors uh, in a third state. Um, so just kind of an interesting <laughs> point. But uh, the U.S. is right to be putting out some of this, but we're, we can be much more effective. We need to be working with our allies and others on joint declarations. Uh, when the court gets it wrong, it is state practice ultimately uh, and authoritative statements from the international community that can correct it. We should be working with our allies, our NATO allies. There should be a NATO statement on many of these, not simply a U.S. Uh, 2016 uh, report. Indeed, my own view is I would try to see if we could get all the permanent members to agree on a few of these fundamental principles. And I am sure there are a number of those principles that the court is treating as though it was the law in which all of the permanent members would have exactly uh, the same uh, feeling. 
The second point is maybe we ought to be a little tougher in when some of the judges come up for re-election in actually using government power uh, to oppose uh, their uh, re-election if they have basically fundamentally misstated uh, something as seriously important as you said, Bellum Law. We might also seek to encourage the court more effectively to look at fact-finding. And uh, that was done in the Corfew Channel case. I believe they used a, an outside fact-finding group that they requested. That could easily be done. Steve Schwabel suggested they do that in the uh, uh, Nicaragua case. But of course, the court refused to do that because they, frankly, weren't interested uh, in the facts. But uh, trying to get them to be a little more honest in that, uh, some outside fact-finding might be helpful. Uh, but finally, let me come down to my last suggestion, which in some respects is the nuclear option uh, in dealing uh, with the court on this problem. And yet it actually, I believe, would restore the court a little more effectively, not just on, on use of force, but on a variety of other issues as well in which uh, there is this tendency to be looking toward uh, one's next election. And that is, suppose we were to work with the permanent members of the United Nations, and we might find they wouldn't agree, but suppose they would. To all of us agree that we will not vote for uh, a second term for any uh, member of the International Court of Justice. We will simply all support a first term but we will believe that it's better for the court if there are no second terms on the court, which would be more consistent with the concept of a court and the rule of law generally. Even with the five permanent members, if we all agreed, we might not always win because it's a simple majority vote in the Security Council as well as the General Assembly, but that would be a pretty powerful starting point. And when I sent a letter to the legal advisor of the State Department some years ago, making that recommendation, and um, I never received a response. You were not the legal advisor <laughs> at that time. Uh, and not surprisingly, this was, I'm sure, viewed as uh, the nuclear option that's uh, a little too nuclear. Um, and yet, it's consistent with the way we think about courts and what we would like to do and what we know about how people, good people, uh, as well as bad people, behave uh, if they're seeking a second term uh, in a court. Finally, let me thank David Graham and Murr and Bill of my, my staff, and above all, um, all of you uh, who have participated uh, so wonderfully on the panels and uh, Yoram coming from Israel, this has been a just wonderful, wonderful pleasure to see you again and to have you here and to have you make such a uh, wonderful presentation. But it is David Graham and Burn Bill and particularly David and what he's done that really, uh, that's why we're all here. He just did a fabulous job. Um, and David, thank you very, very much. Thank you all for coming.